Our Lord Jesus Christ, how wonderfully you are building your church. We're grateful that you told your disciples of this great work, that they might understand and trust in you in it. A word spoken so long ago, and yet a word that still speaks to us today as we seek to know the power of the cross in building your church. And um, we would long to be faithful participants in that work. So bless us by the Spirit to that end. We pray for your glory and for our good. Amen. Well, again, uh, for... Um, Oh, now what am I seeing here? Can you all hear me? Not very well at all. Oh, dear. <laughs> I think a couple of other people have put in the chat. Yeah, I, I've, just, I've just seen all of that. And uh, now this has that improved it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, the mic just doesn't work as well when it's not plugged in. It, uh, <laughs> oh dear. All right. <laughs> Comedy of errors here this evening. Well, tonight we want to take up um, what uh, I'm entitling Conflict as a Means of Grace. We're working generally on church discipline. This should have been the first thing that we brought up because I, I think of it as a kind of orientation. Um, but uh, we got uh, complicated because of the two preaching segments. So um, think of this as an introduction to the idea of church discipline, particularly with respect to conflicts. Um, the ancient Chinese proverb reminds us that the longest journey begins with the first step. It reminds us that even great enterprise must begin with small things even before the first step. If that step is to be in the right direction, you have to get your bearings. You have to be rightly oriented. This is critical in all parts of life, but especially so when we're beset by conflicts. In the storm, how do we get our bearings? As I've mentioned, I've been involved in dealing with church conflicts for many years. And I've seen it confirmed that the first step is absolutely crucial to get oriented properly before you get down to the particulars of whatever's causing the trouble, to remind yourself of the great truths concerning God and the world that must be brought practically to bear when dealing with conflicts, if we are to do so faithfully. With that in mind this evening, we're going to look at the conflict troubling the church at Corinth to gain a proper orientation toward conflicts in the church. We're going to start out looking at 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 17. There were problems at the church of Corinth, and that obviously stirs Paul's deep concern. Listen to his urgency in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. Paul draws out the majesty of our Savior 
as the one who rules over us, uh, the one who is our Savior, the one who is the anointed one of God, bringing all this to bear on the solemnity with which the Corinthians were to hear this appeal. Now, there'd been uh, terrible news coming out of uh, the congregation. Paul mentions at 11, for it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is this, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So, terrible quarreling among believers, and it's quarreling with respect to holy things. Uh, The preachers of the gospel are appointed by Christ for the glory of Christ and the upbuilding of his church. And these folk have made it into a curse, become it's the occasion of conflict between them. The um, Paul is so distracted by this terrible scene that he's led to rejoice that he had nothing to do with baptism for most of them. Here, a precious ordinance of Christ, integral to the work of the gospel and the gathering of the church, and it too is an occasion for strife. And so he continues on that um, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Now there's much of interest in this particular text, but this evening I want to turn um, the circumstance to this circumstance to mind something of its broader significance. Recall the wisdom of our confession of faith in one six, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Uh, That is to say, not only what the Scripture says in so many words gives us God's truth, but the things implied by Scripture's teaching are also truths of God. And we need to attend to those implied truths and heed them as such. Well, we see that this conflict at Corinth, on the face of it, a catastrophe, church threatening in and of itself, believers participating in infantile jealousy and strife, yet this becomes the occasion for great good. For in Paul's dealing straightforwardly in a godly manner with the Corinthian church in conflict, the church is actually built up as an outcome of it in a wonderful way. Thus, Paul will write to them in the second letter in 2 Corinthians 7, 8. He he speaks of how he made them grieve in this letter when he was saying these things. But he says, I do not regret it. Uh, Though I did regret it, for I saw that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. And later in the letter, he notes again in 13.10, 
For this reason I write these things, with the authority that the Lord has given me for the building up of the church and not its tearing down. And so great good came out of the conflict, but further notice this. It led not only to the building up of the Corinthian church, this letter, directed by the Spirit of Christ, becomes a blessing to the church in every age. The Corinthian crisis becomes a cordial for the church. Their their dirty laundry, the occasion for the cleansing of all churches in all times. And so we ask ourselves, is this an accident? Is this just a happy coincidence? Not according to the Apostle Paul. Paul told them, it's because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1.30. They are God's field, and he gives the growth, as he argues in chapter 3. They are God's building, and he's constructing through the ministry of Paul a structure that cannot fail. And so when these happy consequences come for that congregation and for the whole church in every age, it is for no other reason than God purposed it to be so. Thus we learn, from the point of view of the Lord building his church, he intends conflicts to be a means of grace. Now what I'm presenting to you tonight is an adaptation of uh, a wonderful portion of the book, The Peacemaker, by Ken Sandy, that I hope some of you are reading. It is a a, a most essential book for understanding how to live in this world, but certainly how to live in the church. Um, And I want to be clear uh, about the, the, or excuse me, I, I jumped ahead. So, conflicts, a means of grace. What do I mean by that phrase, means of grace? Typically, in the Reformed tradition, it refers to prayer and preaching of the word, to the sacraments. Means is an instrument, a way that some, by which something is delivered. Grace, it's the favor of God, the transforming favor of God. His his goodness conveyed to us by this instrument. So God's goodness is conveyed to us by the preaching of the word, by feasting at his table, by turning to him in prayer. These are all instruments whereby the goodness of God is brought to us through the power of the Spirit. So what we are urging then is that conflict, that which appears on the face of it to be a a catastrophe, which might destroy in the sovereign purpose of God is actually a means whereby God conveys his goodness to the church. This is the essential orientation for every believer when you face difficulties in your life, when you face difficulties in the church. Before we go on, I want to be clear about the profound debt that I owe Uh, to Ken Sandy and his work in opening up this subject. In 1996, I was the chairman of Presbytery's uh, Committee on Ministerial Responsibility. The committee, that committee's responsibility was to deal with problems in the churches. Throughout that year, that committee had been dealing with severe difficulties in several of our churches. 
dealing with a number of complaints, formal complaints, one of which eventually was heard by the Standing Judicial Commission. We held not only our stated monthly meetings, but we were typically required to hold five or more special meetings in between our stated meetings. The committee was absolutely exhausted. In our reports, we would regularly seek that all the churches and elders be committed to upholding the work of the committee in prayer. Our glimmer of light came, though, when we began pursuing as a committee a study of Ken's 1991 book, The Peacemaker. It was extraordinary in biblical fidelity and usefulness. So profitable was it, finally, that in a Presbytery meeting on, in September of 96, the committee moved that Potomac Presbytery sponsor the Managing Conflict in Your Church seminar from Ken Sandys Institute for Christian Conciliation, and that all teaching elders and officers of the church be encouraged to attend. Pastor Alfred Poirier, now professor of practical theology at Westminster, came to us from, from Montana to lead the seminar in April of 1997. The result was absolutely extraordinary. It was transformative. In the years following, happily, our committee had very little to do. In the years since, I've seen nothing but confirmation of this powerful teaching. And all that I say today is the fruit of the seeds then planted. So again, our claim tonight, God intends conflicts in the church to be a means of grace. We will consider the matter in two parts. First, the concept, context of conflict, and then the calling or vocation of conflict. First then, the context of conflict. And here the question is, will we come uh, to conflicts in worldliness, or will we come with a renewed mind? One could look at conflicts as something to be feared, as painful, distressing, to be ignored or hidden away, as scandalous and embarrassing, or to be suppressed, at best to be endured, in hopes of minimizing damage. Many look at conflicts that way. Or one could look at conflicts with unwholesome relish. Uh, these, this belongs to the more warlike among us. It's an opportunity to put your opponents to frustration and flight, a wonderful opportunity to see your own cause vindicated. All of this is to think of the matter exclusively in horizontal terms, from the point of view of appearances only. But our Lord Jesus Christ insists that we're not, we're not to judge only according to appearances, but we're to judge righteous judgment. And his apostle Paul took that to heart. Paul focuses his address to the Corinthians not on their failings, but on the faithfulness of God. Look at what he says just before he addresses the problem in the church in verse 9 of the first chapter. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son. Conflicts are to be understood in the context not of failure, but in the context of the faithfulness of God. What God? Well, Paul insists, the one God, the Father, from whom all things are 
and for whom all things exist, and the one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom all, through whom we exist. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. The God is the, who is faithful is the God who is that source of all things, the one who orders all things, the one whose purposes guide and direct and define all things. Thus, in thinking about conflicts, we must not, in the words of Paul, be conformed to this world, but we must be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Romans 12.2 In every conflict, then, this is the crucial question. Will we deal with conflicts from the point of view of a renewed mind or in conformity only to worldly interests? How does the renewed mind see things? Well, believers must come to any conflict with the practical conviction that God has brought this circumstance about. Here's the difference between theoretical Calvinists and practical Calvinists. Most PCA folk have heard Ephesians 11.1, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Most of us have got the theory down pretty well. We certainly agree with the general proposition. But it is perfectly easy to be a theoretical Calvinist without being a practical Calvinist at all. There must be more than theory. There must be a practical conviction This circumstance that I am in right now has been appointed by God. That terrible slight that I've just received, the person destroying my reputation in the workplace, those circumstances exactly were appointed and ordered by God, who is sovereign over all things. This understands, this understanding is a transformative view of the circumstances. We may not understand God's purpose in particular, but we know in general that it is for his glory and for the good of his people as a body and as particular members. Thus, for believers dealing with conflict is a divine vocation. It is a holy calling. This is illustrated nowhere more beautifully than in the life of Joseph. You remember his brothers, terrible ill will, murderous treatment that led to slander, privation, and imprisonment over many years, all kinds of miseries. Then suddenly, those brothers are in Joseph's hands at the mercy of his enormous power. How did Joseph exercise that power? What is revealed about his perspective in the conflicts that he has faced? What he does is comfort his brothers. Genesis fifty nineteen, they're brought in, they're clearly frightened, and Joseph says to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Joseph knows what they've done. He doesn't ignore their treatment of him. He's perfectly realistic. And he observes it in verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. 
but Joseph knows more than those appearances. There was more going on in Joseph's life than simply their ill will. God was at work. You meant it against, meant evil against me, but he continues, God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The extraordinary circumstances that led Joseph's wisdom to be transformative for a whole nation. Thus, he's able to act with generosity toward them. With kindness, he is a blessing to them. He comforts them. In verse 21, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus, the writer observes, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Do you see then, conflicts are properly a means of grace, an instrument for conveying to us God's goodness. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is an expression of the practical significance of the doctrine of providence. The doctrine so beautifully put in one sentence or so by J.I. Packer. I've mentioned it before, but I never can resist quoting it. The doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind fortune, chance, luck, or fate. All that happens to them is divinely planned and each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice, knowing that for all, for all, knowing that all is for one spiritual and eternal good. All that happens is planned. No such thing as luck or fate, but rather circumstances are a calling, a summons from God to express our faith and to live faithfully. So, conflict comes to us as a summons to respond in faith to providence, and it presents an opportunity. And there are four things we can identify here, at least, with respect to the opportunity that conflict presents. First, the opportunity to glorify God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Second, to grow to be like Christ. Third, to serve others. And fourthly, to bear witness to the transforming power of God. That brings us then to the calling of conflict. And I, I want to take up briefly each of these and comment on them. So first, conflict is a call to glorify God. Now we uh, know that uh, God's glory is his excellence displayed in the world. What is it to glorify then? Well, it's to show forth the excellence of God in some way. This is uh, the goal of all of our endeavors in life. You recall from 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Particularly as those redeemed by Christ to show forth the excellence of that redemption. 1 Corinthians 6.20. For you were brought, bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. To glorify, that means in the midst of conflict, 
we must engage with a profound sense of dependence upon God, calling upon him in prayer in the first instance. It means exercising faith, trusting in the Lord, not judging by appearances, but walking by faith, not by sight. It means obedience, acting for his good pleasure. As Paul says later in the second letter in 5.9, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And so, a key question in every disagreement we face, not how can I win, not how can I get out of this alive, but supremely, how can I please Jesus in the way that I deal with this circumstance? I call it to glorify God. Second, conflict is a call to grow in Christ-likeness. According to Paul, as he writes to the Corinthians, this is the meaning of life in this age. In the second letter at 1318, he says this, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is God's purpose, by his Spirit, to transform us into the image of his Son. And this comes about, first, because conflict is part of the suffering of this world that has a redemptive purpose under God. Paul speaks of this in Romans 5 at verse 3. He said, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, if we hadn't heard this so often, it ought to shock us. But the point is, he doesn't rejoice because of the sufferings themselves. No, in fact, if he rejoiced in them themselves, they wouldn't be sufferings in that case. Rather, we rejoice because we know the meaning of our suffering lives. He goes on to say that, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The power is there already by God's gift. The sufferings are the occasion for the exercise of that power for the manifestation of its transformative ability in our lives. So, part of the suffering that has a redemptive purpose, it's transformative also because in the midst of conflict, we discover our weakness and our need for his strength. And thus it drives us to Christ. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul said, uh, uh, understood this in his own circumstances. He had wanted to be relieved of suffering. And the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul drew the right conclusion. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may re remain upon me. Not only do we... Um, 
uh, have the redemptive benefit of suffering. Not only do we discover our own weakness and are driven more to Christ, but we uncover sin and seek grace for repentance in ourselves and others. And this is a happy thing when we hide our sin, of course. It's agony and it's destructive. And finally, we grow in the graces of love, patience, courage, and forgiveness through exercise. We know that this is the way our body works. Um, Our powers don't simply blossom of themselves. Our innate powers are drawn from us on the occasions for need for effort. And this is true spiritually as well. In the new birth, God has granted us in seed form all of the fruit of the Spirit. But the manifestations come only in exercise, only through experience that occasions their manifestation. Uh, This can be illustrated in viticulture. I hope you all enjoy good wine. But do you know that the best wine comes from the best grapes? And the best grapes are those that have been stressed the most in the growing season. It's quite remarkable. The harder it is on the grapes, the better the wine they produce. And surely that must be our Lord enjoying a smile that he has created something like that to so perfectly match his purposes in our lives. That we're stressed and the stress brings forth fruit, the transformative power of the Spirit to help us to be like Christ. This is true no matter how the matter turns out in, in a worldly perspective. The outcome belongs to God. But in faithfulness, we can grow in Christ-likeness, whatever the outcome. Thirdly, conflict is a call to serve others. This is one of the most difficult challenges in this teaching. Someone crosses us in some way, and everything that belongs to our sinful nature wants to translate that person into an opponent, and we want nothing more to do with them. We forget the calling of servanthood altogether. Imagine, could Paul have said to the Corinthians, you people are a mess. I've got churches to plant. I've got the glory of Christ to proclaim. I'll have nothing to do with you. On the contrary, their conflict was the occasion of Paul's reassertion of his sense of call to serve Christ in serving them. He doesn't want to dismiss them. It becomes an occasion for him to seek uh, more urgently to minister to them. And so he says throughout these letters, in uh, the first one, 3.5, what is Apollos, what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. 1 Corinthians 4.1, This is how you should regard us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mystery of God. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, again, 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. That should be our self-consciousness, that when we enter into a conflict with another, we reaffirm, in Christ my Lord, I am a servant of this brother or sister, and I want to be used in some way to help them grow in Christ. This is, according to Paul, a self-sacrificing service in 2 Corinthians 6, 4 and following. And Paul is not unique in this. Service is a call that belongs to all believers. It is but an expression of the royal law of our Lord, as James puts it in 2, 8. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In this you are doing well. Our gifts are for building up others in every circumstance. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Let all things be done for building up. What does this service look like in the context of conflict? Well, first of all, we uh, try and help carry our opponent's burdens. That's Paul's counsel to the Galatians in 6 at 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a trespass... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are, secondly, to serve by encouraging our opponent to trust in Christ throughout and to present an example to him of the same trust that we encourage. And we don't look to the outcome alone. We know what we, what we must do, and we know what God made do. That's what Paul reminded Timothy in the second epistle at 2.24. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, and God may, perhaps, grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. But if he does not, Timothy's efforts in that description were not wasted because those efforts glorified Christ in and of themselves, and they were part of making him more like his Savior. And we are to serve by seeking the common good, what be good for all who are involved, not simply our own personal vindication. So Paul wonderfully instructs the Philippians in chapter 2, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, finally then, Conflict is a call to bear witness, to bear witness to the transforming power of the gospel. Paul urged that the Corinthians should pursue this way of life, and it would be a confirmation of the testimony about Christ that they had received in 1 Corinthians 1.6. Here's the point. By the gospel they had been forgiven, Thus they were willing to forgive. 
So Paul taught the churches, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. The bottom line is this. In every conflict, we need to ask ourselves, what visible difference will it make before a watching world that I am reconciled to and a servant of the living Lord and Savior in the way I deal with my problems. Well, a couple of thoughts uh, as we close um, concerning the significance of this for us in particular. First, I think we need to ask ourselves, am I being a good steward of the conflicts in my life? That may sound odd, But if they are a means of grace, it means that we have a stewardship with respect to them. To invest our time and trouble, to have it pay off in growth, in grace. Uh, And to be pursuing these points self-consciously. I want to glorify God in this. I want to grow in Christ-likeness. I want to help my brother, not hurt him. And I want to witness and have him witness with me that we can deal with this in a way uh, that shows the truth of the gospel. Uh, Have you considered this in uh, your approach to conflicts in the past? If you have, well, give thanks. But if not, repent and hear these instructions and be committed by God's help so to live. Here is my testimony 16 years on the Committee of Conflicts of Potomac Presbytery. Very hard assignment. I've had an opportunity to see believers at their absolute worst. But I want to say there's a payoff. I have often seen the Lord at his best, bringing good out of evil, healing out of brokenness, reconciliation out of alienation. Not always. His ways are inscrutable. This is a broken world, and heaven remains as a hope yet to be realized. But often enough, often enough to encourage and preserve in confidence that he can when he wills, and he wills according to his own wisdom and and purpose. Is there some conflict now troubling your life? Have you come to it from this transformed point of view? Embrace practical Calvinism. Resolve today that you will take up this calling and receive conflicts as a means of grace. Thus, let us set our minds on Christ in this, who he is and what he has done. He perfectly embodied this counsel. Think of how John Newton has taught us to consider Christ in the poem, One There Is Above All Others. Could we bear from one another what he daily bears from us? Yet this glorious friend and brother loves us though we treat him thus. For though for for good we render ill, he accounts us brethren still. Oh, for grace, our hearts to soften. Teach us, Lord, at length to love. We, alas, forget too often what a friend we have above.
but remembering our friend, well, what is the outcome? Now another beautiful poem, Flock of Jesus, Be United. Grant us, Lord, with thy direction, love each other, we comply. Aiming with unfeigned affection thy love to exemplify. Let our mutual love be glowing. Thus will all men plainly see that we, as on one stem growing, living branches are in thee. May our light before men with brightness from thy light reflected shine. Thus the world will bear us witness that we, Lord, are truly thine. Well, let me stop there and uh, give you an opportunity to make comments or ask questions about um, what we've covered. um, And then uh, any other questions you you might have on anything we've talked about. Um, Anybody, a thought, a question, comment? Yes, Bonnie. Was, thank you for tonight's lesson. It's really encouraging. Um, in the application, so I'm looking at the last little bits of what you gave uh, of it for how we're good stewards of conflict, and then looking at the different um, parts of what conflict is. Conflict, uh, at least what I'm hearing you say and what I'm thinking you're saying, it's not just the conflict between us and somebody else, but it may be that we're drug into a situation where conflicting parties are wanting us to help them or wanting us to find or encourage. Yes. That's the more difficult one for me to understand because, frankly, this is really convicting for me because I avoid conflict almost at all costs. And (laughs) it's just like thinking of this and thinking, okay, Lord, they've talked to me and I've talked to them, but I don't know that I've really addressed it in a way that would help the conflict be a glory to the Lord. Mm. Mm. Well, it's interesting, Bonnie, in Ken's book, he discusses the ways in which we respond to conflict and he has it. Uh, he has a chart uh, that's a uh, sort of a half moon, and um, the uh, um, he says we have a tendency to go one way or the other: conflict avoidance or conflict embracing. Um, and sometimes it's partly based on a person's personality. But he very uh, powerfully argues that the person who relishes conflict tends to gravitate more and more toward an extreme, and the extreme of it is to actually murder someone, to dispense with your opponent altogether. And on the other hand, the conflict avoidance it tends to go more and more. But what that bears fruit in, if it's not arrested or uh, adjusted in some way, is suicide, trying to avoid the sadness and horrors of this world altogether. 
So self-murder and murder of another, uh, he wants to argue, are what's in play in learning properly how not to avoid a conflict nor to relish it, but faithfully uh, to serve Christ in it. I I found that a very um, striking point. Said just then, and what the lesson tonight did point to is that just that the looking at what our purpose is. Yes. And it's not about me; it's a bigger purpose than than me or even the individuals involved. It's uh, the story of Joseph and what he saw and that God allowed him to see. Yes. So this is really good encouragement for me to pray and ask the Lord to show me how I address this mm. when someone has come to me, and if I need to address it further than what I already have. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thanks, Dave. All right. Anyone else want to ask a question or make a comment? or? Well, are there any questions about the Book of Church Order or anything at all that, because uh, we're leaving, not, for Wednesday nights at least, we're leaving this subject to turn to the doctrine and worship of the church. Um, in the days ahead, we'll have the concluding sermon on church discipline on Sunday. But uh, this is your shot if you want. To, <laughs> if you've been reading through the book of church order and you're perplexed by something, I'm perfectly happy to try and address anything you want to bring up. Well, I've got Dave. yes. I really like the handout that you sent out um, and that you resent out again. And uh, I like the way that you've put together a lot of the, the handouts for our reading. Um, on the topic for tonight, though, I, I uh, appreciated all the scripture verses and uh, in what you reviewed with us tonight. But I think that it's very, very difficult for people to bear in mind, um, you know, uh, aligning our behaviors to scripture and to be thinking to be thinking in spiritual terms when we're caught up in a conflict. Yes. Mainly thinking about, you know, interpersonal, you know, between, you know, one person and another. There's so many things that make it difficult. Yes. To, um, you know, to not be engaged, you know, in the conflict. Uh, There's so much uh, personal history. There's history in the context of a relationship. Uh, There's emotions that are aroused. there's our sin nature. There's such an ego uh, investment in, you know, proving our case, winning our case, um, you know, trying to establish that we're correct in our view, um, the history of feeling injured by the other person or party. Uh, there's so much of that. And I wonder, you know, how, uh, what, or what tips would you provide uh, for somebody to be more mindful of, um, you know, being able to step back away, uh, you know, at the opportune time to be able to reflect on that opportunity um, as, a, as a means for grace, you know, in this conflict. Yes. Because again, I think it's so easy to get caught up. Yes, a- absolutely. Um, and, and I do think that um, um, that the process of sanctification just generally speaking, is designed to help prepare us for this. That we more and more die to self 
and more and more come alive to Christ. That's what we're trying to do in all the parts of our lives. And this is just a special application of it uh, in this circumstance where often we feel like we've been liberated from that (laughs) calling to die to self and come alive to Christ, that uh, not in this circumstance. I've got to defend myself and vanquish the enemy and all that sort of thing. So I I think you you go a long way toward uh, the possibility of progress just by realizing that fact, that this is as much a part of dying to self and coming alive to Christ as in prayer and reading the word and serving friends and family. Um, But it's even, in many ways, much, much more important here. But I I agree entirely that uh, it's an enormous task and it's extraordinarily complicated because we're extraordinarily complicated people. but it, it is a wonderful uh, experience when the Lord does give you grace uh, to be really harmed by another person, verbally or even physically, but to have it in your heart to want their good to want to forgive them and hope they could be brought to a place where they would seek forgiveness and to find reconciliation. Um, I'm basically just agreeing with you, but I, I do think it's helpful to see it in that general concept of uh, dying and rising. Does that help at all? Uh, yes, again, I think it speaks to the complexity of um, conflict. Yes, yes, good point. Well, let me, um, for those of you who are thinking about office, um, the, um, I think I'm going to, I was going to direct you to the Book of Church Order and talk a little bit about the examination process. But I think if anyone would like, I'll add that on as a, maybe we'll get together and uh, for those who are interested in and go over it. That's chapter 24 of the Book of Church Order. And if I reviewed that with you and, and the uh, uh, ordination um, vows and so on, that might be profitable for you. But probably just as well to leave that and not try and shoehorn it in here. Um, yes, uh, Cater Will. Hey Dave, could you send um, the Packer quote along at some point? Oh, sure. Uh, that's short enough that I can probably get that in the chat. Here, um, let me see if I Thank can you. pull that up. Um, I've been uh, working on a resurrection all afternoon, and so I'm nearly brain dead. Uh, Jenny's computer <laughs> was near death, and I'm trying to bring it back to life. Um, 
I'm here in the other room laughing. <laughs> when you said, I think they were worried. They were all worried that you actually were trying to resurrect someone. Ay, ay, ay. Here we go. Um, This quote uh, appears tr- twice in print, and I'm not sure. Uh, oh, I looked at the wrong place here. Um, it it uh, is in Concise Theology. Um, no, I've got the right place. And it's also in the. Uh, um, Reformation Study Bible, or no, the New Geneva Study Bible. Um, There are little sort of theological boxes interspersed throughout that Bible that are really wonderful, and Packer wrote all of them. Um, So now all I have to do is get back to Zoom, get to the chat. There we go. So you should be able to cut. Can everybody see that? Uh, you should be able to copy it right out of the chat, I think. But do it now while we're still uh, on the Zoom, because I think as soon as the meeting closes, all that disappears. Anyone else a thought or a question or... show up in my chat. I don't know if anybody yeah. else saw it. I don't see it. Oh, why? Well, no. Oh, <laughs> somehow I was on uh, <laughs> sending it only to Kathy Grant. <laughs> I, Kathy, you must have a special place or something. Here, let's try again. I'll send it to all. Now can you see it? Yes. Yes. Well, all right. Uh, Let me close with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, what a marvelous thing it is in our eyes that what might have appeared to be for the destruction of the Corinthian congregation has become the occasion for their upbuilding, for the strengthening of the apostles' ministry, and now for us, centuries later, for the strengthening of our own love for Christ and determination to serve him. You have granted us grace to this end. Stir that grace up in us, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.